your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, welcome. <clears throat> Sunday has rolled around again. And uh, the only reason I know that is because I know that that's my day for radio. Otherwise, they, they seem to just blend one into the other. All right, let's start out by a question. Famous painting by Edvard Munch called The Scream. And uh, is that ever an appropriate uh, painting these days where you see someone, uh, not, uh, not clearly male or female, but just uh, silently screaming? And uh, we all have silent screams these days. Anyway, the yellow color of that uh, painting is uh, cadmium sulfide. Cadmium sulfide was a very common yellow paint used by artists. But now researchers are finding that the yellow is becoming more and more white. And that is because the cadmium sulfide is oxidizing. So here's my question. What is the product of that oxidation? So what is the cadmium sulfide being converted to? What is it being converted to as it is being uh, oxidized? All right. Morning, I had a question on the trivia show. And uh, it referred to vodka. All right, let me tell you the whole story. It's probably apocryphal, but nevertheless, it's interesting. The world's best-selling vodka, Smirnoff, owes its original fame to a very clever marketing gimmick by Pyotr Smirnoff. Uh, Peter is, is would be the English translation. And in those days, the name was spelled S-M-I-R-N-O-V. And Peter was a serf who, by the time of his death in 1898, thanks to vodka, had become one of the wealthiest men in Russia. Well, no, Smirnov did not invent vodka. Uh, this is a beverage that is composed of water and alcohol and essentially nothing else. That's uh, its main appeal because it doesn't have any specific uh, flavor, doesn't have any specific odor. And uh, you can just take it at a shot and uh, get drunk. Or also, of course, you can mix it in various kind of cocktails. Anyway, the, the, the fact that it's available in this pure form dates back to the invention of the still by Arab alchemists. And that was somewhere around the 8th century. Well, as we know, of course, the fermentation of any grain, any fruit or any vegetable that contains sugar or starch, produces alcohol. And I, this is one of the oldest chemical reactions known to mankind. And, uh, you know, the idea is that uh, uh, enzymes that are present in various kinds of microbes will convert the starch and the sugar in these uh, fruits or vegetables or grains into alcohol, along with a mixture of many, many other compounds. Anyway, when you do this fermentation and then you carefully heat the mixture and cool the vapors that come off at a specific temperature, then you can isolate a solution that is essentially alcohol and water. Originally, such solutions were used as medicines, but by the 14th century, vodka, and that term originates from the Slavic Jiznenia voda, meaning water of life. It was being consumed as a beverage in Russia and Poland. Anyway, voda was eventually shortened to the affectionate nickname vodka, meaning little water. The fact that the drink contained little water meant that its consumption could quickly lead to a state of alcoholic stupor, 
a problem that has plagued Russia to this day. And then by the end of the 18th century, there were a number of distilleries that had sprouted up in Russia, and they were producing a lot of different kinds of vodka. And uh, the vodka was becoming more and more pure because uh, a chemist, Russian chemist man of Theodore Lowitz, had shown that you can filter the beverage through charcoal. And this removed any residual impurities. Because as I said, when you carry out fermentation, you get a lot of compounds. And you get a lot of alcohols. Ethanol, of course, is the most famous one, but you also get methanol and a number of other compounds that we call congeners. And uh, those are the ones actually that are associated with uh, causing a, a hangover and a headache. Anyway, there was a lot of market competition. It was very fierce. And uh, Pyotr Smirnov, who had founded a small vodka operation, had an idea. How do you get up a foot up on the competition? Well, his idea was a bear's foot. At a fair, Smirnov exhibited a couple of bears that had been trained to drink vodka. And uh, they actually drank it from a glass that was held between their front paws. There were also waiters who were dressed up as bears who were going around smirning Smirnov's vodka to, to the gathering. I mean, the, the Russian bear, of course, is icon, iconic and associated with, with uh, Russia. Uh, you've probably even seen films of bears being trained to play hockey. They actually skate. Really neat. Anyway, the real bears actually did knock back the vodka, and that rendered them sleepy and amiable throughout the whole fair. Now, as the story goes, the Tsar was in attendance at this fair, and he was really taken by the display of the bears. He gave his vodka a benevolent approval, and sales really took off. By 1904, Vladimir, Pyotr's son, who had inherited the business and had taken over the company, uh, the company was producing more than 4 million cases of vodka per year. That is a lot of vodka. The Smirnov family became fabulously rich, and the Tsar, who saw that there was a lot of money to be made from vodka, decided to nationalize the industry. So what happened was that Vladimir was forced to sell his factory and uh, had to give up his brand. In 1917, another problem the October Revolution, the Russian Revolution. And the Smirnovs, who were now considered to be aristocrats because of their wealth, had to flee Russia. And uh, after a little sojourn in Constantinople, they ended up in France, where Vladimir managed to found a distillery again. It was a rather small one, and uh, nothing compared to the uh, one that he had in Russia. Actually, it was at this time that the original Smirnov name, that is S-M-I-R-N-O-V, was changed to Smirnov, O-F-F, because that was the contemporary French spelling of the name. And then in 1933, Vladimir sold the rights to produce Smirnov's vodka to Rudolf Kunet, a Russian who had emigrated to the U.S., and uh, the American vodka industry was born. Why is vodka so popular? Well, probably because of the high alcohol content and the lack of taste, which makes it ideal as the base of many a cocktail. Bloody Mary's, Moscow Mule, and uh, of course, the vodka martini. 
as James Bond tells us, that has to be shaken, not stirred. Vodka is 80 proof, meaning that it is 40% alcohol by volume. And uh, contrary to a widely disseminated myth, this 40% standard was not set by the great Russian chemist Dmitry Mendeleev. He, of course, formulated the periodic table in 1869. And last year, we celebrated the 150th anniversary of the periodic table. This myth can be traced on advertisement by Russian Standard, and that's a popular brand of vodka. Uh, it is true that in 1894, Dmitry Mendeleev, the greatest scientist in all Russia, received a decree uh, to set the imperial quality standard for Russian vodka, and the Russian Standard was born. So claims an ad for Russian Standard. The fact is that this is not true. Mendeleev's 1865 doctoral thesis was entitled A Discourse on the Compounds of Alcohol and Water and dealt with the density and thermal expansion of a mix of alcohol and water at various ratios. It had nothing at all to do with vodka. Mendeleev did sit on a Russian commission that examined the way alcohol could be taxed efficiently, but again, this was nothing to do with vodka. Mendeleev had no connection to this 40% alcohol content, but nevertheless, the story has given birth to the American vodka called Mendeleev. The great scientist, I think, would not approve. Uh, he did not drink vodka for fear of becoming an alcoholic like one of his brothers, and he actually preferred wine. You're listening to The Dr. Do Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Hi, Ed. Thank you, Dr. Joe, for taking my call. What's up? It's about the COVID-20 that I heard on the radio. It's a pneumonia-related, and it's um, I believe it's pretty strong in the Soviet Union. Yeah, what about it? Hey, I'd like to know if you, you have any uh, information on that and uh, if it's um, contagious or whatever. Well, no. I mean, nothing more than what you've already heard. I mean, uh, you know, they, these viruses are evolving all the time. So the COVID-20 just refers to one of the, you know, evolved forms, uh, mutated forms. Uh, but no, I mean, at this point, there's nothing that we can we can predict. Uh, that's one of the problems with this whole business is that it is inherently unpredictable. And the uh, fact is that whatever is being predicted is not likely to to come true. Uh, yeah, I, it's, uh, I hope it, it I really hope is, uh, you know, mystifying uh, how much energy and effort has been put into uh, trying to come up with some sort of information and you know solution to this and and how little results that we have had so now i i can't tell you anything more about that mm -hmm. uh, another quick question uh, doctor i uh, had one of these uh, vegetable um, juices bottle it was at the back of the pantry and i pulled it out it's in a plastic container a big bottle and it's changed the color is it safe to what what uh, what was in the container uh, eight vegetable uh, juice, you know, cocktail. Yeah. And it's a nuclear plastic bottle. And it's changed color. If it's not good for drinking, can I cook with it? Uh, you know, the, the general rule is when you have something like that, which is relatively cheap, mm -hmm. uh, when in doubt, throw it out. Okay. I, I can't the tell you what happened to it, but, but if it's mm -hmm. changed color, 
don't take yeah. any chance with it. But it's not bloated. The bottle is uh, has not uh, swelled up, you know. Yeah, that doesn't mean anything. That, that um, I mean, that just means that no gas has been produced. But there's all kinds of spoilage yeah, yeah. that can happen without gas being produced. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And what about if it's in a in a dry can dry um, vegetable powder in a container? A dry, dry powder is very is very likely to be safe. The, as long as there's no moisture, there's no spoilage. Or it's in a sealed bottle. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay. Have a nice, have a nice. Okay, all right. You know, I mean, uh, there are color changes, of course, that, that can occur that are, are, are benign, that we don't worry about. But when you don't know, it's better to be safe. Uh, I, I'll give you an example. One that, you know, I get a question of, often about is blue garlic. You know, is it safe to eat? Well, you know, it's not an earth-shaking problem. Uh, and you would think that someone would have totally solved the problem of the uh, garlic, you know, why does pickled garlic sometimes turn blue? And uh, people do get unnerved when they pick up a jar of pickled garlic in which some of the cloves have a blue tinge. And uh, it must be spoiled, they think. Well, no. Uh, We know uh, for a long time already that blue garlic, uh, which may be unappetizing, uh, but it's completely safe to eat. The puzzle has been why cloves turn blue and why only some cloves in some jars. Uh, believe it or not, this blue garlic question has been investigated for a long time. It goes back over 50 years. Uh, and uh, there was a, a paper published in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry that did get to the heart of the matter. And uh, it's not that there haven't been explanations before. There, there were, but they were mostly wrong. Two basic theories have been advanced in the scientific and the popular literature. One held that the discoloration was due to the buildup of copper sulfate. Uh, That's not an unreasonable idea, given that copper sulfate is indeed blue and that copper can be present in our water supply. The theory was that sulfur compounds known to be present in uh, in garlic uh, can convert to sulfate, which then reacts with copper in water to form the colorful copper sulfate. Since copper concentrations in water can vary, the problem wasn't always expected to be seen. That sounds reasonable, doesn't it? But it's not correct. Uh, Experiments can readily show that doping doping the water with extra copper before immersing uh, garlic cloves does not necessarily produce the blue color. The other theory advanced was that garlic contains compounds called anthocyanins, which change color depending on the acidity of the surroundings. Anthocyanins can indeed do this. And, uh, you know, we've all seen the example of red cabbage treated with vinegar or baking soda. But the anthocyanins present in garlic are not susceptible to such color changes. Once again, it is simple enough to design an experiment to show that pickling garlic with different amounts of vinegar, uh, that is, with different amounts of acid, does not correlate with the blue color formation. So what then is going on? As a team of experts from the Czech Republic and the U.S. found, the discoloration is due to pigments that form between sulfur compounds in garlic and amino acids. Isoalene is found in garlic, and when the garlic tissue is disrupted, as happens in processing, an enzyme is liberated which reacts with it to form compounds called thiosulfonates. And these then react with the garlic's naturally occurring amino acids to form blue pigments. There are many reasons for why the blue color sometimes forms or sometimes not. 
the age of the garlic determines how much isoalleine there is in the first place. The nature of the processing determines how much enzyme is liberated. Uh, some of the mysteries still have to be cleared up, but you can rest assured that there's no harm in consuming your blue garlic. The pigments that form by the reaction of the thiosulfonates with amino acids are, are not toxic uh, at all. Uh, and talking about blue, I mean, the blueberries, the color of blueberries, of course, is caused by anthocyanins. And not, not so that's a different story than uh, what I just told you about the, uh, the garlic. And uh, in this case, uh, there also can be some color change depending on the degree of uh, acidity. Uh, but this is quite a different thing from the uh, blue garlic. So anyway, uh, uh, there's no need to worry about uh, the blue garlic. There's one one time that there um, can be concern about uh, uh, pickled garlic, and uh, that is if the garlic has not previously been properly cleaned and there were botulism um, uh, uh, bacteria that were present. And there, unfortunately, have been cases like that where people have gotten very sick from eating uh, garlic that uh, was contaminated with uh, botulin, and that's the toxin that is produced by the botulin clostridium uh, bacterium. And uh, you have to be very careful when you're going to preserve garlic. And any time that any uh, garlic jar uh, shows an excess of gas, that means that uh, they're probably has been contamination and that should not be uh, consumed. Other than that, uh, there of course are all kinds of stories about garlic being beneficial for health, that it can lower cholesterol, that it can lower blood pressure. Uh, and you know there's a lot of scientific literature on this, but the effect is really, really very small. And it turns out that it, whenever there is an effect, it is due to the same compounds that give garlic its uh, classic aroma. So the so-called odor-free garlic uh, tablets that you can buy are not likely to be of, um, of any use. But if anyone really does have uh, high cholesterol or high blood pressure, uh, it is best to consult a physician and, and go with proper medication rather than try to rely on garlic. I mean, garlic is great for cooking with. Uh, without a doubt, it adds a flavor to everything. And, of course, uh, there is something that uh, we know for sure about garlic, and that is it will keep vampires away. And I'm sure those of you who uh, eat a lot of garlic will attest to the fact that uh, you have not encountered a vampire. And there's another uh, good thing about garlic. It also keeps elephants off your lawn. And you'll notice that if you do put out a few garlic cloves on the lawn, you will not have to worry about any elephants. All right, uh, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take a break, check for the news, and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I did get a text answer to my question about the uh, color changes in the screen. And I said the yellow color is cadmium sulfide, but it's becoming white because it is being oxidized. The question is, what is the product of that oxidation? And the correct answer is cadmium sulfate. Sulfides do oxidize to sulfate. Uh, sulfate is SO4, so that's the oxygen, that's the oxidation. And uh, cadmium sulfate is, is white. All right, let me throw out another couple of questions for you guys, see how you come up with these. First of all, a 1981 movie 
It used scratch and sniff cards to add odors to the movie experience. What movie was that? And uh, I'll give you a chance with a second question. What is mushroom soup used for in the movie industry? So in the movie industry, they use mushroom soup. Why? And what 1981 movie used scratch and sniff cards to add orders to the movie experience? If you know, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. Uh, you can also, of course, text your questions and comments to 514-800. This week, of course, we had that rather uh, optimistic report uh, from Moderna about the vaccine. Well, let me shed a little bit more light uh, on this. While it is encouraging that there were no significant side effects noted to prevent pursuing this path, uh, it is also important to realize that this is a small step in a very, very long journey. The first thing that is done when a new drug or a new vaccine is targeted for market is to make sure that it is safe. That comes up before even delving at all into whether or not there's any effectiveness. Because the first thing you need to know is it is safe. And for a vaccine, of course, safety is even more important than for medications because with medications, you are basically targeting sick people. But with a vaccine, you're going to be giving it to a very large number of uh, healthy people. So you have to make sure that it is absolutely safe. So generally, the first uh, experiments uh, are referred to as a phase one trial, where a very small group of subjects, generally of varying ages, are treated with the uh, vaccine or the drug that is being uh, uh, experimented with to see whether or not there is any risk. So in this particular case, the very small phase one trial involved 45 people and they were given three doses of the vaccine, and uh, it was followed by booster shots a couple of months later. So the question was, first, side effects. And there were. There were a very significant number of side effects, but they were not very serious. They were pain at the injection site, uh, some uh, coughs and uh, sniffles, uh, in a few cases, just temporary respiratory problems. Uh, more than one would like to see, but not enough to prevent further experimentation. So because uh, the side effects are deemed to be acceptable, they will now go ahead with a phase two trial, which involves a lot more subjects, and they are planning on about 3,000 subjects. And once again, they will study safety, but they will also pay attention to whether or not there's any effectiveness. That is, they will take a careful look at antibody production as a result of, of the vaccine. In the very first study, the phase one study that I mentioned, there were some tantalizing results uh, with the presence of uh, some neutralizing antibodies that they noted, but they were there in, in pretty low concentrations. So it's hard to know what to make of it, but at least it's better that they were found than if they had not been found. So if it turns out that um, in this phase two trial, the side effects are still acceptable and that they are noting uh, some potential efficacy, then you go on to the most meaningful 
the phase three trials, which are randomized, double-blind trials. And this involves the use of an experimental group who will be getting the vaccine and the use of a control group, which will be getting a vaccine without any active ingredient. So they will probably be getting just a saline solution. The study will be monitored uh, and the monitors will not know who is getting the live vaccine and who is getting the placebo. They will be followed for two years to see what happens whether or not there's a reduced risk of infection from viruses and uh, how the uh, side effect profile turns out. Two years of follow-up, and that is a very shortened time. Many of the vaccines that now are in common use took over a decade to develop. So in this case, the research has been really shortened, uh, and even the, the time for the trials is shortened, but the time for efficacy, that cannot be shortened. We have to see what happens when the vaccine is, is out there uh, to see whether or not it can actually cut down the rate of infection. And the shortest time that will give any answer to that is about two years. So what we are looking at here, even with this most optimistic of vaccine studies, is about two and a half years before we get any sort of, of results. So while it is true that a vaccine may be available by next year. We will not know how effective this vaccine is until another at least two years have passed. That, unfortunately, is the way that science works. And uh, the research has been speeded up as much as, uh, as possible, and the vaccines are already being produced even before knowing whether or not they are safe and effective. The companies are gambling that their particular version will be the one that is safe and effective. And there are many companies uh, involved in this. There's something like 160 vaccines that are under investigation now. So hopefully one or more of these will turn out uh, to be effective. But at this point, we just don't know. I think it is much more likely that we will have some sort of a treatment uh, sort of in the vein of uh, what we now have for, uh, for AIDS, some sort of antiviral cocktail, so that if you do come down with uh, COVID-19, uh, it may not be as serious as it could be uh, with, with treatments. I, I think that is, is a more likely scenario uh, while we wait for the vaccine. But you also have to understand that even with a successful vaccine, we're talking only about a success, about 70%. So, you know, when you look at the flu vaccines today, which are said to be, you know, pretty, pretty effective, you're only looking at an efficacy of about 70%. So the virus is not going to be the, uh, the ultimate answer, or the, the vaccine is not going to be the ultimate answer to the virus. So what is the ultimate answer? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. I mean, eventually, like we saw in 1917 and 1918, uh, herd immunity of some sort will develop, either because of the advent of a vaccine or because of the death of a, a large number of, of people. For now, wearing masks is a possible way to curb the spread. I don't understand this anti-mask business. It is true that we don't have ironclad evidence that uh, universal wearing of masks is going to be able to, to stop this pandemic. It probably will not be able to stop it, but I think there's a good chance that it will curb its spread. 
And this idea that that uh, you know people should have individual freedoms and they should have the choice to 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 wear a mask. Well, sometimes you have to do things for the good of society at at large, and you have to look at the risks and the benefits. I don't see what is the risk with wearing a mask when you go into a grocery store or where you go into to a department store, or some some indoor place like that. And if there's a chance that this is going to curb the spread of the virus, why not take that chance? You don't always have to have 100% certainty about something before you act. So I think uh, this uh, idea of individual freedoms somehow uh, being curbed by telling people to uh, put on a mask, I think is, is unrealistic. There are many things that we as a society do uh, you know, to, to protect all of society. And uh, this is just one of those. Uh, why not take the chance that it might do some good and wear that mask when you're indoors in an environment where there are lots of people? You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I had a question here about garlic, whether or not you have to worry about botulism when you eat uh, raw garlic. Do you have to be fastidious about cleaning it? No. Uh, the botulin only forms uh, when it is stored under, when the garlic is stored under anaerobic conditions that is not exposed to the air. So no, you can eat raw garlic. You don't have to worry about uh, botulism. Uh, the only thing it will do is destroy your social life. Okay, let me go to Kevin for a moment, who I think has an answer to my questions. Kevin. Yes, sir. The uh, mushroom soup, is it for puke? Is for what? Vomit. Yes, it is. Mushroom soup is the classic thing that they use in special effects for um, uh, vomit. Yeah. Okay. Okay, uh, what about the other question that I asked? I'm not sure. What was the question again? Uh, the question was about the 1981 movie that had a scratch and uh, sniff uh, cards distributed to the audience. I want to say a Muppet show? No, no, it wasn't the Muppet show. And uh, actually someone texted me that in 1977, Hustler sold a scratch and sniff magazine. I wonder what <laughs> I wonder what you sniffed when you scratched the Hustler magazine. I hesitate to think about that. Okay, thanks very much. Pleasure. Okay, uh, let me go to uh, Tom. Hi, Tom. Yes, sir. Good yes, afternoon, Doctor John. Hi. Hi. Uh, my question is: uh, This week on, uh, I don't remember whether it was uh, Andrew or Elias's show, they interviewed a gentleman who has a a clothing company here, and who has turned to making uh, superior quality reusable face masks. Uh, he has them made in Italy. And my question is, because he, he he's talked about one, something called Q-Skin Fabric, which is antimicrobial, and then another, what was the second thing, to add an additional layer of protection have been treated with, in quotes, the ultra-fresh antimicrobial treatment to reduce the growth of bacteria, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it's only two layers, and I'm just wondering if any of those names say anything to you as far as... No, they say blah, blah, blah. 
they say blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. talks about silver being in it and all this. Yes, I mean silver or copper fibers in a mask. They do have some antimicrobial property, but that has nothing to do with whether or not the virus can pass through the the mask. It that has to exactly do with mine. you know that if 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 the virus contaminates the mask, then it may have a shorter lifetime than on another mask. But yes, that, yes. You know, but that uh, isn't all that meaningful. It's That's what, what I thought. And they don't really talk. They say that the material stretches four ways, so I'm not even sure whether it's good or not as far as a mask goes. You know? Yeah, I don't think that there's a, there's not a whole lot of difference between the masks. The important thing is to wear one because it yes. will cut down on, on the large droplets that, that people exhale. And it doesn't I'm matter. With, all I'm with that. you on that, Dr. Joe. I wear them all the time. Okay. Okay, you Tom. Have a great day. Thanks. Thank Bye. Let me go to Al. Hi, Al. Yeah, hi, Dr. Joe. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I'd like to share the um, the findings of a report that was prepared by uh, Dr. Russell uh, Blaylock, uh, who is a national. Oh my God, Russell Blaylock. He's yeah. he's he's been a pain in my butt for a long time. <laughs> oh, he's. Have you, have you read the? Report? Oh, I, I haven't read that, but he is a totally non credible person. Totally. Okay, well, he raises the issue that um, prolonged wearing of masks, either. Uh, cloth or surgical or even yeah. N95 type masks will uh, result in healthy people experiencing a reduction of oxygen saturation. This is this is total blood. nonsense. <laughs> total nonsense. Okay. First, so first of all, oxygen passes very easily through the mask. You know, uh, <laughs> the oxygen molecule is yeah. about a thousand times smaller than a viral particle. Okay, so, that's, so that's you know. Good. The, the the fact that they, these is the same people who are the anti-masks say that that uh, the masks are useless because they don't filter out the viral particles, then claim that you're being starved of oxygen even though the, the oxygen molecule is a thousand times smaller than the viral particle. So if it doesn't filter out the, the virus, how can it filter out the oxygen? Well, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, this is, this is ludicrous. Okay. Anyway, I mean, there, there are a number of, of, of studies that have have shown uh, that when you uh, measure the uh, oxygen content, you know, by putting the little device on the finger, uh, there's no difference in people wearing masks or not. Yeah, now, yeah. One other uh, question for you, Dr. Yeah. Joe. Um, the other day, I, I dropped a two-liter bottle of, um, of uh, soda water uh, on the kitchen floor, and of course, uh, I could sense the buildup of pressure in, in the uh, container, and I waited... Uh, for quite a while before I cracked it open. Now, my question is, what causes the CO2 uh, just by by dropping it on the floor? What causes the CO2 to come out of solution and start building up such pressure? Okay, what what happens? The CO2, of course, normally is dissolved in the liquid, right? Okay. All right. Now, in order to cause the pressure, it has to come out of solution and uh, form bubbles. Now, you will notice that on to in, whenever you have any kind of, of, of carbonated beverage, there's always an air pocket at the top, right? The liquid does not totally fill. Uh, yes, fill. that's okay. correct. So what happens is when you drop it, that air pocket mixes with the liquid so that oh. there are air bubbles now throughout the liquid into which the carbon dioxide that was previously dissolved in the liquid now evaporates. Oh, okay. So, and then, so, of course, it and then of course you you get the expansion of those bubbles, and you you get the uh, pressure okay, buildup. Okay. So, if I were to put, say, a, a pressure gauge on on the cap of the bottle, 
I could actually see that pressure rise after, uh, oh, for after sure. agitating or after uh, dropping the bottle. Yes, certainly. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, uh, that, certainly. well that, that solves that mystery for us. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Dr. John. Okay. Let me make a couple of other comments about the you know, supposed mask being uh, dangerous. Uh, athletes today, many of them are wearing the mask while they are performing. And of course, that requires uh, uh, breathing in oxygen. You know, uh, for example, last night I watched uh, the Mets and the Yankees game, exhibition game, but uh, it was a real game. No spectators, of course, in 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 sight. It was kind of a bizarre thing to watch. And as uh, baseball fans know, the season gets underway Thursday night, and there's still a few exhibition games left. So anyway, they had the Yankees-Mets uh, uh, game on, on TV with no spectators. Interestingly enough, some cardboard cutouts in the seats behind home plate so that when you were watching it from the uh, center field camera, it looked like actually there were people sitting be behind. Interesting. I think it would be quite clever if those cutouts actually were wearing masks, but no, they uh, they weren't. And uh, a number of the players were wearing masks, uh, even when they were playing on the field. And uh, Clint Frazier is one of these. Clint Frazier is, is the Yankees left fielder, known as the Red Thunder, because he's he's got a pretty good swing and, and uh, hits a lot of long-distance home runs. And he's one of the players who was uh, wearing a mask while playing. And wouldn't you know it, uh, he hit a thunderous home run into the third deck at uh, City Field. Uh, and he was not a little bit impaired by the mask. Not at all. Uh, of course, that is one case. That doesn't mean a whole lot. Uh, but uh, I think that the, all of this business about masks being unsafe is, is just uh, silly. That's it. We have run out of time. But we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.